welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvik. Hello, all you cool cats and kittens. I gotta stop saying that. <laughs> hey, hi, everybody. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> and on to today's episode, we've got two really special guests. They um, have a company around probably my favorite subject in the world, which is food. Now, we have uh, Jonas and Nena from the company Matter. Um, they're a Nordic food company, so hello to you both. Hello. Hello, you guys. Lovely to be here. How are you doing? Well, Good. Yeah. Fine, actually, considering the circumstances. So are you both based in London? Yes. Yes. We are in Highgate, right by the Hampstead Heap in London. So how are, th- how are things going down there? I'm a little more northern than you guys, so... We're a little bit more spaced out. Yeah, we, yeah we, we call ourselves Northerners because we live in the northern part of London, but I guess you'd be, call us, be calling us a couple of southern pansies, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. It would be something like that. Yeah. It's all relative. As a Dane, I'd be calling all of y'all sitting ducks, though. <laughs> right, then. <laughs> but you're in Colorado, darling. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, I'm com- yeah, I mean, I'm land-based over here, landlocked completely, so I can't even take my ship anywhere. So That's it. Yeah, well. That's it. <laughs> well, we can always go to that, down to the Thames and uh, board some... Nah, never mind. Well, I mean... <laughs> um, well, you asked how we're, how we're doing. Yeah, I mean, just, just how are things in general, obviously. I imagine when I haven't been down to London for a while, especially not since everything's kind of kicked off. So how are, how are things down there? I imagine it's a bit more intense there than it is up here where I am. Uh, well, we live in Highgate, so it's quite, like, people are quite well behaved in the heath. There's a few, uh, um, how would you say that, sunbathers, because the weather is so lovely. It's perfect quarantine weather. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, apart from that, people are very well behaved. They're keeping their distance. So I'm not, we're not really feeling it like that. I don't know. It's different in different parts, but we're also localized and grounded. So we can't really, we can't really decipher what's going on in the rest of London. No, I mean we just uh, we just uh, uh, heard about tons of hundreds of parties being shut down in Manchester. Uh, like people are just partying like crazy, like having house parties and so on. But like, what what was it like? They had like a, a, a what do you call those? Uh, like um, air? What do you call them? These these cast bouncing castles. Bouncy castles. <laughs> bouncy castles and DJs and stuff like that. And certainly people are are, are slightly more well-behaved in, in the heat. There are a couple of loiterers, you know, like, yeah. uh, and so on, but uh, but uh, it's it's mostly sort of quite civilised, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people wonder why they get caught when they have DJs and bounce castles. <laughs> What's going on? Well, the they say that mad. they don't believe in it. They don't believe in coronavirus. That's really impressive. I mean, that... that we're not even getting that in, you know, Boulder, where that that's a college town, right? Like, you know, the typical American college scene with frat houses and all that stuff. We don't even have that kind of stuff. We don't even have those noisy parties, as far as I can see down there. Of course, I'm a little far up in the mountains, but still. I want to know who's hiring the bouncy castle at this time. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess, I guess if if it keeps the uh, the the bouncy castle man still going, then it's good for business, but. <laughs> 
it certainly wouldn't be my first my first choice, you know. If when I uh, when I get out of quarantine or lockdown, I don't think I'm going to be hiring a bouncy castle straight away. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like just imagine that you're like you're bouncing around in a bouncy castle with like tons of people just like breathing each other right down to each other's throats. I mean, just like. What's going <laughs> on? You guys are insane. But, but they're not Corona believers. Yeah. yeah. But what did you say? There was some kind of, the, the, like, they don't really believe in coronavirus or something like that? No, they don't believe in it. Uh, they don't have coronavirus in Manchester. It's a bit like the, sort of like the UK's, like, sort of version of Iran, you know, like, when Ahmadinejad came on to, you know, in America and said, like, we don't have gays in Iran. It's the same with, like, Manchester. It's like, we don't have corona in Manchester, you know? Like, <laughs> I guess, maybe. I mean, as for, to be fair, a lot of things I've seen coming from uh, your side of things, Matthias, seems to be people thinking it doesn't really exist or they don't have it. I mean... Oh, yeah. And and it's it's getting weird here like oh okay so colorado is you know being pretty sensible with all of these things we have a great governor who is really doing his job and the federal government also seems to be relatively nice to colorado um so that's great but um but elsewhere (laughs) in the u.s it seems to be getting a little weird like churches that that won't shut down and if they do shut down they get you know federal aid i've heard um so i didn't know my tax dollars was going to be spent on religion but here we are uh (laughs) yeah uh it's like being back in denmark (laughs) oh my (laughs) yeah i mean i i think i saw that in new york there was think thinking about or are going to use some of the public parks to bury the dead temporarily, which I thought mm-hmm. was a really terrifying yeah. thought. Yeah, and they, they had, I saw something about, like, uh, they have, like, convicts uh, basically, like, you know, digging mass graves in Rikers Island or something like that. That's um, that's some dystopian stuff right there. But, you know, the contrasts are, like, India and, and Sweden at the moment. Like, Sweden, with their strategies of just keeping the market open and India shutting it down that everybody is completely freaked out by the pandemic. It's not realistic. None of those two scenarios seem quite realistic to me, but at the same time, we don't know what's going to happen. So none of us really, we're all in a, in the abyss now, you know, it's, it's definitely interesting seeing how, how different countries are reacting to it. Like you say, Sweden are pretty much going as, as if nothing's happening carrying on as normal and then like you say, other countries have just completely shut down um, and I guess no one really knows what's the best answer what's the right way to go at the minute yeah it's a strange thing because you know uh, we can get into what our company does later but one of the things that our company does is you know just uh, you know we do events and and this thing has obviously been completely shut down for us so we have to really think on our feet right now and sort of think about what we're going to do and so on and so forth. So in a sense, if we had been in Sweden, if we'd been Sweden, Swedish uh, based, uh, we would have been able to carry on at this point. But then again, would we have wanted to? That's a different question altogether, you know? 
Yeah, that's a good, really good point. You know, would you have wanted to? As I jokingly said to Daniel earlier, I, yesterday I went uh, in a drive-through at uh, this uh, burger joint we have here in Colorado called Good Times, and ever since I've been wondering, am I going to die from coronavirus? <laughs> because the guy handing my burger out of that window didn't wear a face mask. Oh, <laughs> oh my! You know, these times are weird, right? Because yeah. like we. I mean, we're we're reacting in 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 such a curious way to 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 how this is all going down, and of course, you know, some measure of precaution. We need to have that. We need to, you know, since it's an unknown illness, we need to to be a little cautious. But on the other hand, we n- none of these countries that are doing whatever they're doing don't know if that's the most appropriate response and neither do we as these you know people who are sitting yapping about it on facebook or where else <laughs> you know we don't <laughs> we're not uh, we're just as bad yeah we're just as bad we're, we're we're worse because we don't have the expert knowledge to, to draw on here <laughs> yeah, but even speaking to the experts even they don't know so nobody knows exactly right yeah yeah but it is, an, it is an incredible experience to go down to Tesco's to, to get a few groceries and so on and then see, uh, see, this, uh, see, this, see these guys standing in the till with like masks on. It was one time I was going down there, this guy that, you know, I've, I've you know, spoken to him as, as you do with your local uh, supermarket clerk uh, every once in a while. And, and, you know, and he was standing there in what was looking like some kind of slapdash hazmat suit and, and, uh, and, 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 and a breath mask on and, you know, everything. I just looked at him like, man, you, you, you look wild. You know? and, he's, and he's like, yeah, I feel white, mate. You know, like, <laughs> it's, it's definitely unusual to see. I mean, it's, it's just different. It, it's, it'll take some getting used to. I think it'll happen for a while. I mean, it's interesting you mentioning events because obviously we quite we rely quite heavily on that as well, doing the trade shows, you know, getting out and about and, and taking all the merchandise we make and taking it to shows to sell. And now that doesn't look like it's, it's going to be, be possible. I mean, I think the three major events that we do, one is at the Excel Centre in London, one is at the SCCC in Scotland, and then one is at the NEC in Birmingham, and now all three of those have been made into to hospitals. Wow. So, so it, the, these big hospitals are opening up in in the biggest exhibition centres in in England or well, in the UK, and it's kind of it makes me think, how long is it going to be before they they are transformed back from hospitals into exhibition centres again, and people can start relying, you know, getting back into these trade shows. And, and events hmm. and the tourism industry as well yeah the tourism yeah. industry as well yeah yeah it's, it's um mm. it's been hit hard as well yeah and we don't know what's going to happen that's the thing it's it's so uncertain for all our sectors in that sense and that's going to overall affect the overall economy even with the companies that are doing well because everybody's interconnected and affected by it so oh, there'll definitely be some companies that are doing very well though yeah, but if people don't have the money to pay for their goods and services, then... Oh, what were you thinking about, Daniel? Mm. Were you thinking about people that sell masks? Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. I mean, mask companies, I think gym equipment companies. I tr- I, I bought um, a steel mace the other day. For... Now the gyms are close. I wanted to work out in the garden. 
and the and the guy emailed me back. I mean, it'd been a few weeks since I ordered it, and he, he sent me an email saying basically they'd had a year's worth of orders in three weeks. Yeah. Oh wow. So that kind of. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Yeah, but the supermarkets <laughs> also the stocks went up so high as well. It's like ten, fifteen percent. I'm uh, Zoom. Yeah. Zoom are doing really well. Yeah, toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm actually waiting for my shipment from some kind of like survivalist firm uh, or company thing. Um, they're supposed to send me some stuff because you know. I'm not a prepper for nothing. There's a reason to live in, in the mountains. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that stuff hasn't arrived yet. I'm wondering like, if there's a lot of people ordering stuff from, from those guys too. Yeah. <laughs> and you, if their uh, stocks are going up too. Have you got a pack out bag ready? <laughs> uh, what now? <laughs> uh, one of the pa- is that, I'm sure I think that's what they're called, isn't it? A pack out bag? You know, a bag sat in a, in a, in a cupboard or a wardrobe. With all the essentials ready to go, if you need to. Oh, bug out bag. I think is that the, oh. That the term? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh dear. <laughs> I got all I was, the things. <laughs> I was testing your extreme prepper knowledge. I, I watch on Netflix. I do, I don't know the terminology. I'm foreign. Come on. <laughs> I must admit I had never heard that word either in, no. in my life. But uh... we Londoners, yeah. But that's why. I'm I'm not a prepper. I just binge watch extreme preppers on Netflix. Oh, okay. Right. okay. <laughs> that's what it is. I, I'm not a prepper either. I'm just a little prepared. Okay? I'm not I mean, a prepper. Once, once all of these nice people start fighting over all the toilet paper, I mean, it would be nice to be able to, you know, find alternatives if nothing else. <laughs> leaves leaves in the woods. <laughs> Well, you know, as a happy chance, you know, we do this kind of thing every month. We uh, we get our order of toilet paper in, and uh, um, but by a happy sort of chance, really, uh, we've been traveling a lot, so we haven't actually used our uh, toilet paper. So we had two months worth of toilet paper when we came back from Norway the last time. It was just before this whole shit hit the fan. So, so all, all we the toilet like, papers here. And, so, our, and our supermarket. Would you mind sending me a couple of words? <laughs> like, I have not actually been able to find toilet paper for a long time. Okay, oh okay. So, so that's amazing because in Highgate, we're not running out of toilet paper. The only thing that we've run, run out of in Highgate, the only thing is flour. So people are excessively baking in Highgate, apparently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> flour, yeah, flour is definitely something hard to get hold of. We can't get any up here either. No, really. <laughs> so, no, yeah. Oh, yeah, and and then, and then, the and then I know I, I noticed when I was in Tesco's and and the local uh, the local offie as well that you know something like uh, uh, bubbly champagne and prosecco and that kind of stuff. That's also something that we don't really have here in here in ha- all the all the Hampstead cunts are, are like sitting and going, oh, <laughs> you know. <and> <laughs> Hey, uh, Jonas, uh, since you and I are both Danish nationals, I I, I thought I should uh, share this with you. Um, Denmark uh, seems to be ramping up buying sex toys in (laughs) this crisis. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) there's so many people buying sex toys online in Denmark right now. Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. See? That's one of the industries that's doing well. Yeah, I guess. Some industries are doing well. Maybe we should get into For sex toys. <laughs> yes, sex toys. Yeah. Nordic sex toys. Vi- Viking, sex Viking sex yeah, toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, ca- carved in wood. Only. <laughs> <laughs> but like, to be fair, that's, that's, 
That sounds like something we could transform into pretty easily. Yes. Yeah, you guys, <laughs> yeah, yeah, with your... Thor's hammer. We're, we're set up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just think about it. There, you can, you can buy, you know, crystal sex toys, right? So, like, basically, you know, dildos made out of crystals. So, why not wooden Viking ones? Yeah. yeah. Why not horns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just really yeah. big horns. Big, big, big fucking horns. horns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jonas. <laughs> right. Before this, before this gets any more in the gutter, then... Uh, well, I mean, it is the third word, first, uh, you know, you only you need to, you know, add the letter Y and you got the word horny, right? So, like... Uh, oh, gosh. No, that's no, that's it. like grandfather. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's, so, it's gone. It's done. It's gone in the gutter. <laughs> You you wouldn't believe the amount of, of comments we get around that. I mean, <laughs> jokes, every every joke possible regarding like horny or I've got the horn or anything like that. I've heard it numerous oh, times. Oh, come okay. on. All right. Every, every, everyone. Jonas, you're so conventional. The, ho- the horn of Odin. Oh, yeah. I guess I guess I'm just some kind of like little innocent uh, Viking guy over here. I'd never ever thought of that no nor have i <laughs> neither have that i until, never occurred to me neither <laughs> had i until you brought up the sex toys thing right now so uh, yeah it's the danes we've got to blame matthias oh it's the danes it's my fault <laughs> let's jump into like i said my favorite subject probably in the world which is food uh this is i've been really looking forward to this to find out kind of what you guys do and and learn a little bit more about the food side of our of so the Nordic world is. So, tell us a little bit about it. What is it? Is it more authentic based? Is it reproductions of original recipes, or is it more of like a modern twist? Okay, so um, it, in in a short description, um, at Matter, we call ourselves a New Nordic Historic Food. So it's very much focused on um, um. Geohistoric cuisine. So what we're doing is that we're start sort of mapping cuisines uh, from the Nordic areas, so like from Norway and Denmark, and even in the UK actually, because it, it's similar landscape here, and localizing what the traditions were to eat here, and looking at different ways that historically people used to eat and techniques that were historic um, from the Viking times and before that in order to come up with the new cuisine and, and also like to identify what is traditional cuisine in a place like Norway, for example. That's what we've been working on the la- this year, at least, and the last year. And uh, going into their traditions and really looking at what there is on the land and foraging and um, hunting and figuring out how, how to get back into the sort of hunter-gatherer mindset which is what pre-Viking times and um, we definitely look into what records we have of the Viking times so it's, it's, it's very difficult to get very authentic uh, into it but we can have a very good idea about what it is um, what they used to grow but I think this is something that Jonas would like to talk about well yeah I mean we we uh... Well, this is just about where where to start, really, because one thing is what the company does and the overall strategy of the company and so on. And and if you want to talk sort of more specifically about the kind of food that we produce, we can start there as well. I mean, for me, 
I, I'm kind of wondering whether it's is it mainly looking at the ingredients that would have been available at that time and then you make dishes based on using those ingredients or I mean is there any kind of written evidence of, of I guess is there any sort of recipes or I, I, this is something that I know very little about so I mean I don't know whether there is any written evidence of you know and would they've written recipes in any sense so uh you know to use one of your favorite terms on the show because i've been listening to 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 the show a couple of times you know <laughs> it's it's complicated right <laughs> okay from the pre-viking age if you go into that you you definitely don't have um you don't have don't have any written records of the kind of food so what you have to that the kind of food that they would be eating so what you have to do is you have to go into the archaeological uh, sort of uh, source material and 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 try to find out um, and that's you can do that in various different ways. You can look at the kind of tools that were available to them and then you can sort of make what is called experimental archaeology where you recreate these tools and then uh, by then using these tools you sort of with your creative mind try to figure out how would these tools have been used and then of course um, uh, then of course you can also go to the earliest um, documents we have which are sort of like medi medieval um, cookbooks like for instance that we have one from Denmark from the 1200s for instance uh, which is which which where well, you can go in and look at the kind of dishes that we create and say okay well that's maybe the closest we can get to something that they would eat in in the Viking in the Viking age I mean I would say the conditions in the 1200s in Scandinavia aren't that different from from you know the Viking Age, there are some things that have been, you know, imported over uh, over that period of time. Um, I believe apples might, uh, at least that's what I have heard um, um, studying Norse mythology. That apples sort of like are introduced to Scandinavia in the Viking Age, um, and maybe in the late Viking Age. But um, I'm not I'm not too certain about that. This this is old old research there might have been new developments in that aside from that you know you have things like um um what's it called that, that um um is it stout yeah i think that is being introduced to scandinavia as well in, in during that period of time so like different you're talking about the beer yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah um yeah uh, so like the, these different things are like introduced in that period but but largely i think you can expect that people are eating the same kinds of things in like the 1200s More or less, yeah. yeah i mean of course one of the things that's interesting about the viking age is that you know one of the things that they did was that they reopened the some of the old trade routes that had sort of gone stale after the collapse of the roman empire uh, so that's one of the things that the Vikings did. That's why you find all these kind of exotic uh, uh, spices in, in Danish uh, and Scandinavian cooking, like uh, cinnamon and cardamom and cloves and, and the, these different different things, was because the Vikings reopened these these trade routes. Um, and uh, the, the reason, I w the, what I wanted to say about that was that, of course, that then in the 1200s, uh, spices like that probably had become a little bit more common than they would have been perhaps in the in the, in the viking age i i am i'm of the belief that i think there was probably some because the viking age was all about like bragging about what you could do right like if you were some kind of chieftain you would really sort of like if you were setting up uh, a feast and you were inviting chieftains perhaps from other places and so on you would really want to show them you know what you got really 
And so if you had gotten hold of a, a spice, uh, an exotic spice through the silk route or something like that, you probably would incorporate that into your food and say, hey, man, this is this thing they call cinnamon, you know, like, and we've put it in the in the in the in the the, the porridge that you're going to eat now or, or whatever it could be. So when you say when you say common, is that common that it would be to the chieftains or would it trickle down to everyday everyday people or is that not no not that common <clears throat> no it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't go down uh, to the poorer people i think it it would stay with the chieftains because the trade in itself um it, it was still quite novel at that time and hence um i don't i think it might have been too expensive that that's Way too but expensive. it's yeah. it's all theoretical at the moment you know you, you could see that with the with the with the fabrics that they use for example with silk as well so we can we, this is all conjectures all guesses really but this is what we've got to work with but it's interesting i mean you, if you see how they grew food and this is where it comes into like um, the agrarian societies and before that there was the there was a lot of foraging societies before the viking times so it's it's all about looking at how they did it and then they also had techniques like doing it in these cooking pits and things like that so it's it that's how you can kind of sort of figure out what they would eat and how they would eat it and um that's actually what we are trying to derive something out of so it's very difficult. It's very ambiguous. It's it's not something you can be too accurate about. Yeah, I mean you have you have trash you have trash heaps, for instance, that like from a place like uh, Hidebu in in now northern Germany, where you uh, well this that's a you know town environment, and you can see based off of what people have been throwing out, pretty much at least to, to some extent some of the things that they've been eating, right? Different kinds of like. Bones and so on would uh, would give you some information there. Of course, uh, poop analysis is also part of it, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. I but but I actually made a I made I made a I made a dish inspired a by York 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 Viking York poop. Oh, uh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I did actually. I, of course, I did not present it like that. Yes, they were eating it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I just said it, I said the dish was based on uh, archaeology uh, archaeological work from York. I did not say this was actually from the analysis <laughs> of poop, but because one of the things that they saw uh, that the Vikings were eating a lot in York were um, were uh, not mussels, but um, what's the thing you love, Nana? I, the word escapes me now. This thing you love to eat, you oysters. always yeah oysters yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> uh, so oysters. So. Um, so oysters and root vegetables were eaten a lot uh, in in York. So different types of root vegetables that were native at the time, like carrots um, and, so, and beets. And yeah, stuff like, yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Carrots, beets, uh, parsnip, um, all these different things, uh, and and then oysters were eaten heavily. So I made kind of a sort of a Yorkish Viking fish and chips with sort of crispy versions of of these um, of these root, root vegetables. Um, and then and then uh, crispy uh, crispy um, crispy oysters crispy oysters and then I did a lot of other uh, things with that and fermented uh, uh, sea beet and uh, different things like that which are which is a wild herb that grows on the coast um, and different things like that but uh, yeah so that was actually something you know oh I thought hmm, interesting you know so they they would eat a lot of oysters so 
how can I connect that with modern English times? Well, fish and chips, you know, like that's something that we read a lot. And um, so, so I made a dish um, based based on that, inspired by that. And and that's kind of how I work with the food a lot. Um, I think in any at any point in time, if you want to be creative, it's a good idea to put some kind of framework for your creativity. Uh, of course, any chef who's got uh, some kind of uh, qualification can go in and just look at some produce and just use what you know about how to work these different, uh, this different produce and then make a dish. But it's also interesting to then go in and say, well, what kind of narrative would I like to weave with this? Or, or like if I wanted to make five dishes based on archaeology, how would I do that? You know, those kind of things are very interesting to sort of sharpen the mind mm. um, and get into this creative space. But it's also what's very, very interesting for me is that we are connecting ourselves to our uh, geological roots, localizing things, because we are living in a world that is so global and disconnected. And we can get all kind of food everywhere. Um, it's really important for us to find our own food identities where we live and to our history. So it, it has to be something familiar, uh, traditional, but at the same time modern, because it is, we are living in a place where we can create these amazing food cultures. And I think a lot of that is being lost or it's just too boring, for example, like having Norwegian food, which is just traditional. But you know what, you want to get this into sort of a fresh perspective and really find that cuisine. And that's what we are trying to develop, like a real Nordic cuisine so and that's difficult because a lot of people are using these molecular gastronomy uh, very much Norma type of thing you know you're doing new Nordic cuisine but to find that sort of rooted cuisine is 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 quite the challenge but that's what we're trying to do I mean that's I think it's a beautiful thing to do I mean I find it very sad the the, the fact that most people don't know how to to grow their own vegetables they don't know how to we, we've we've become so detached from what we used to be a thousand years ago The, you know, I, I, Sarah, my wife, she has a greenhouse out back and I, I made a, a little veg garden and, you know, she grows carrots and tomatoes and, and I see her out there and I, I'm like, I can't do that. Like, I have no idea how to do that. I feel quite, I feel quite sad in myself and, and quite angry at myself that, that I don't know how to do these things that really we should, be able to do we should be able to grow food to feed ourselves but now i think it's it's obviously more uncommon than common that people just go to the shop and and buy what they need and, and you know they don't know how to do these things themselves so seeing seeing what you're doing and trying to bring that back to life and and see how they you know how they did do it traditionally it's such a nice thing to see yeah no i mean that's uh <coughs> it's 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 a kind of a tradition that you know um i guess i guess you have to we have to pay homage to um to to something like uh, to a restaurant like noma and to someone like rene redsepe absolutely uh because rene redsepe was one of the first guys in the north to sort of say well you know you don't need to necessarily because at the time when he came out you know all the big restaurants all the fancy restaurants in copenhagen and so on they were focusing on either French or Italian, that was really basically it, you know, in fact, if you wanted to be a fancy restaurant, that was kind of the cuisine that you could, that you could make, and you could center your restaurant around, and then he said, no, bugger this, you know, I'm going to go in, go deep into what is growing here in our local, local environment, go into the wild foods and so on, which had been neglected for years, um, 
I was only a few sort of like obscure sort of uh, witches and wizards living in the <laughs> living in the woods who knew what what uh, what the different herbs growing in the wild were. And so, you know, he started this tradition of like going and going and doing this. And then, you know, I guess what what we are adding and then I can talk more about the strategy uh, later. But what the, what we're adding in top is a sort of a cultural connection as well. Um, so mm-hmm. so weaving in these different stories from the Viking Age and the pre-Viking Age as well. And, and looking at the archaeology and also looking at how did our ancestors who lived here, how did they live with nature um, and the cycles of, of, of um, uh, the cycles of the, the seasons and so on. Um, and, and then weave that into the narratives that we tell with the food. Um, it's, it's a very big um, thing for mm-hmm. us. And that's, that's our, one of our main things. Yeah, and that's talking on the food aspect of it. But you see, it's it's kind of interconnected also with the cultural aspect of it as well, because uh, the restaurant culture started with the French, and it became it it, it was like a when coming did it start of. Again? Um, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think it's around the twenties, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so it's like a hundred years ago. Yes, and and the whole idea is a very modern idea. It's a post-industrial idea of going out there eating. It's capitalistic. It it fits into this context of um, communities gathering outside to have a fun time. But you know, if you look at the Viking ages, this is what fascinates me so much about this time and. Uh, so we've been doing dinner dinner parties, dinner clubs over here, calling strangers into our house, and that's the way we like to do it. This is what they kind of did in the Viking Ages, and this is something we are all, we're all kind of missing because we feel very alienated in the in in modernity. So our I, I, idea is also like try to change that sort of idea of a restaurant and go back to really getting communities together and getting the people to understand their own areas and coming together to eat together and also to cook together, to gather food together, to, to develop food together. And I think it, it's, it's sort of, it's quite radical if you look at it that way, because food is, I mean, if you, ch- if you change the way we eat, that's the most radical act you can do because that changes everything. That changes the politics. That changes, yeah, pretty much everything. It's, it's, it's the foundation of our society and how we eat, how we consume things. And uh, this year, for example, we, we, we spent the whole year planning many um, foraging hikes in Norway. So we just opened ourselves to Arctic Norway and developing cuisines for Arctic Norway and taking people out, foraging for a few days and then cooking out in the open uh, what they catch, also fishing, things like that, to connect people to un- understand what is food, you know. And how, what is our connection to food? How are we separate from it? How are we connected to it? What, how are we connected to each other? What, and, and I think the real bonds uh, between people form when you're eating together and you're drinking together. So it's, it's this whole act of it. This is what makes us human. So Is that, is that what the, the, the business kind of is? Is that you, people come to you and then you take them out and you'll go and forage see what you get and then you cook cook that up for them and kind of had this this great experience together yes that's a part of it that's what we do we also um do the dinner parties at home just getting londoners together you know and uh, there's a lot of lonely londoners <laughs> who just want to come out and like talk okay so and... just so i understand this correctly so you basically invite people you don't know for a dinner party at your yeah. house 
<laughs> yes. Oh, that's and cool. they, they pay pay. Pay a good, good amount of money for it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they survive. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is just cool. Yeah, I think it's really it's a really good point that you're making, uh, Nina. That um, you know, it, back in the Viking Age, of course, there was nothing nothing like a restaurant. Um, whether or not there were like taverns or stuff like that, probably to an extent or whatever you want to call that, like in those, you know, town environments. Um, but aside from that, what we, of course, know from the mythology, if we read the poem, Halvamal, right? Oh, the high one speech where Odin is giving us all this knowledge, right? The first stanza is a guest that comes into a house. And then we learn what does a guest need, right? And food is one of the, those basic things. So, yeah, it was very much like the core of, of, of the sort of the quote-unquote Viking ethos to, to share food, to share these uh, resources, to welcome people into your house and, and share whatever you have on your table with them. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that's um that's one thing that uh, sadly i i mean it's still there of course in our in our uh, in our traditions i mean in our in our societies today um but sadly i would say uh, i think the that sort of strong principle that you find in Havamal, for instance, and that you find in India, for instance, like where, where Nina is from, like wow, you know this whole thing about you come to someone's house. And you can sort of straight away feel this sincere wish to invite you in and feed you. <laughs> you know, you need to be fed so much so that sometimes you feel like, Jesus Christ, they're going to roll me out of here. You know, like that kind of thing. I need to go you to know, India. But, oh, yeah, you, you, you so do. And the food is so amazing in India. But we can, we can, we can get into that uh, as well. Uh, actually, we want to get into that because there's something related to what we do as well but uh, but just just to sort of stay with um with the whole uh the, the whole sort of like inviting people in of course when we do it here we don't do it in our house only we also make uh, events uh, outside in different uh, locations and so on but when especially at the times when we invite people into our house of course we I'm aware that we make them pay a premium to come and eat this food um it would be great if we could just be like some kind of you know chieftains but then if we were chieftains we would also be aware that we would get tax sort of, money well, <laughs> no but we we would also be aware that the reason why we can invite people in is because we've just you know pillaged the village next, yes, next exactly. door oh, that's, that's, <laughs> so, that's why we have the money to do it no okay so i'm i'm, I'm i digress yeah so i I'll just have to correct myself because uh, earlier I said that apples were introduced. Actually, it was walnuts. I um, I, I I just got the two things confused. It's based off of um, research that I've done on the story about Idun and Fiatsi from Nordic mythology. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we have um, yeah. Well, she's got the apples, of course. But but the 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 interesting thing about the story is that she's turned into a walnut. And right. yeah, that's right. Because Loki, you know, has to escape with her, right? And he's in the yeah. shape of a falcon, so he flies away with her as a nut. And oh, yes. that's so that's so weird. Actually, so many layers to that. <laughs> I, 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 I want to just because uh, I was going on on something, and I wanted to just finish what I was saying before. 
but I want to get back into the theosophy story actually, because that is that's actually in terms of sort of from a culinary perspective, it's a very interesting story. Uh, um, but uh, just to sort of like finish it, I I'm aware that we are getting people to pay um, a premium to to come and and, and sit and eat. Um, so, but we are, but still the principle is the same. You invite a lot of strangers into into your house. They're sitting down, they're enjoying a seven course uh, or nine course. Um, dinner um and they are from all walks of life um so you know just because we're a nordic um, food company doesn't mean that we only get like people who are interested in you know like you would think they'd just be sort of like uh 20 black metal freaks or something like that sitting and <laughs> sitting and eating um uh, but no, but it's people from all walks of life. It's 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 every we've had everything from like seventy year olds to uh, a, a young couple of twenty who was out on a date, and all these people sitting together in one room enjoying a meal, and then you know I will tell stories with the different dishes and so on, and and sort of create this kind of framework. And once you know a bit of wine, a bit of food comes on the table, people just lighten up and just start talking about. God knows anything, really. We've had people go back uh, really happy, like being friends forever and dating and uh, whatnot. You know, so it's it's quite yeah. it's quite it's quite nice in that sense. You're really getting those communities to come together. That's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds sounds beautiful. I mean, I think the more as a society we become like this global community effectively you know you can reach more people but the more distant we become from each other we we just don't interact on the same level that you used to with your neighbors with your your own little village and it's it's sad to see so something like that is is so lovely that you just come with strangers and you know by the end of the night you're all friends you've all had a laugh you've all eaten some good food and you know, it, it, it's just, it's just not, it's nice is the only word I can think to describe it. It's just a lovely experience. Mm. It's a hygge, as we say in, 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 in Denmark. A koshle. A koshle, as they in say in Norway. In Norway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I, uh, Jonas, I, w- I would love to hear your th- uh, thoughts on the Thiazzi, uh story. You said you were going to tell us a little bit about that. Yes, because uh, now let's uh, see with all this Corona thing whether the festival Fire in the Mountains in Wyoming is, is going to go ahead or not. But that's uh, that's actually one of the things that we've been doing uh, more and more is to get into um, working with with festivals and cultural happenings and so on, and appearing there. And uh, uh, I've had you know now long chats with with Alex, the one of the founders of fire in the mountains and if it goes ahead i am meant to come to uh, fire in the mountains and 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 be a, be a chef in residence there and curate their um their farm to festival barbecue and since uh the whole theme which is curated uh, or or partly curated by ivar bjornsson from uh, enslaved and his the theme is on wings over utgård uh, I immediately thought of the Thiazzi story to sort of connect the barbecue to the theme that he is sort of that he's chosen for this year's fire in the mountains. So I immediately thought about that because that is all about being on wings over Utgard um, or Utgard. Um, so I immediately thought about that because it has so many elements that has to do with food in it. So one of the things that um, 
It's Thor, it's Loki, and it's this more or less unknown god. I can't remember the name of him. Hainia. It's Odin, Hainia, and Loki. Sorry, yes, sorry, yes. Oh my god, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> I, 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 just mixed, I just mixed apples and walnuts, okay, so. <laughs> you mixed, you mixed, you're, mi- you're mixing apples and walnuts, I'm mixing Odin and Thor. Okay, fine. <laughs> and I can't remember Hainir, but he's anyways uh, some kind of, you know, no, 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 no person anyways. So, um... <laughs> Uh, kind of. Anyway, so what what happens is that they are they are in Utgard. Uh, they are on, on an expedition, or they're traveling to, into the unknown somehow, and they get hungry, and they see a steer standing on on the field, and they they kill it, and they want to cook it. And one of the ways that they want to cook it is in this uh, cooking pit, which is uh, one of the things that we know from the Viking Age that they would do. They would use a a cooking pit, which is basically a pit that you dig and you fill it up with hot stones from a fire. And then you put the meat that you want to cook into it, and then you cover it up again. And then you have actually a slow cooker um, in that way. Yeah, and that's um, yeah. The the as far as I remember, I don't have the story with me right now in in the old language. But as far as I remember, they're actually very specific. The the words that are being used about what type of oven they're using here, like that kind of yeah, pit. yeah, an earth oven as they call it. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is kind of kind of cool because you know in being interested in in all this food and and Viking stuff, it's kind of cool that we actually have a story here where they're describing how they are going to cook this uh, this animal. So um, and so so this this is something that in in experimental archaeology people have uh, experimented with cooking in these in these pits and finding out how to do it because one thing of course is that you don't want you don't want to cover what the meat that you're going to cook you don't want to cover that in a lot of dirt um because that's disgusting uh, so uh, so um so one of the things you can you can do for instance is that you can cover the meat in in clay for instance you can actually cover it in clay or in dough and then put it down there and so then you can get super creative right then you can infuse that dough with herbs and garlic and and, and all kinds of different things and uh, then yes of course that's awesome Yes, exactly. So, but the so clay this... is also that's very fascinating to me because you know in India we have yeah. a lot of these uh, meals that we make in clay pots and it it just tastes so delicious because I remember like having something called a frini which is like a, a rice pudding uh, very similar to the rice puddings you get here but just in clay pots and then you would eat the clay and I remember just just kind of digging into the clay when I was young. And eating the clay because it, that was more delicious than the rice. <laughs> no kidding, it's like it, 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 it's a completely different way of eating. It, it's so much with the ground. So yeah. what's this area in Delhi, Nana? Where um, it's a it's a Muslim area in Delhi where they make these amazing biryanis, where they they put the biryanis basically rice and meat and and spices oh, and so on. Yeah, that's also. And then they parts. they cover it in in clay and they seal it completely, and then they they use dough to to sort of seal the lid to to the yes. to the clay pot, and then they just shove it into these big big mountains of fire that they have and then it just slow cooks there for like the longest time it becomes super rich and tasty you know I'm so i'm so hungry when we're finished here <laughs> i am getting incredibly hungry right now <laughs> <laughs> 
Me too. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, so like, so these these cooking pits, for instance, you can get as creative as you like with that, you know. So that's one of the things I'm going to attempt to recreate for uh, for Fire in the Mountains is to to do a a, a a Viking barbecue, and I'm going to come out there quite a long time before the festival starts and go around and find out all the local ingredients, go out with the foragers and so on, and find out all these different things, and then create this barbecue. And then another thing is that in this story, you have the theme of apples and nuts as well. So we're going to do a lot of things with apples and nuts again, you know, like really creating this framework for, for how to work creatively with food. That sounds so, so awesome. I mean, I, I as a personal friend of Alex myself, I, I know he grows his own food, right? He is a, uh, he, and he's a farmer. Yeah. He's a farmer and his, he's, it's top quality. It's delicious. And I'm so much looking forward to that. Uh, crossing fingers that 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 everything will work out and fire in the mountains will still happen this year. Also, as a you know, as a kid, I uh, in Greenland, I um, experienced um, several occasions when people would be making similar types of ovens, like dirt ovens, um, when we were out, um, you know, in, in the summertime and so on, uh, for either you know smoking um, fish or or also cooking in so. That's um that's really cool that you guys are reviving that tradition. <laughs> I just think, you know, I just think, you know, just to say one last thing about that, you know, I you know, you you can get probably the same result uh and 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 some would say technically maybe you could get a better result with a sous vide which is a normal uh, which is a modern uh, technological device that can slow cook. Um but that's just not the same as having been out there with your own bare hands and digging up a whole pit mm -hmm. and putting hot stones into it. That whole process that goes into that. I mean, that is real slow food. Taking your time, thinking carefully about these things, connecting it to something cultural that goes deep into your roots mm -hmm. and everything, and then creating a, a dish out of that. It's going to take hours to do. And once it's on the plate of some person... It's gonna take five minutes, and that's gone. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I I have had uh, pit cooked uh, uh, goat before, and that that was was just amazing. And you know, we're part of the whole process of like digging the hole and 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 all that stuff. So yeah, I I I love it. Would would the pits have been a common thing, or would they have been like one to? A village? Is there any evidence of that, or is there any evidence, archaeology, archaeological evidence of the pits kind of being found to suggest, you know, how often they were used? I I don't I don't know I don't know uh, how often they were used, but 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 one thing I think is interesting to note right here is that this is a story about a couple of dudes on an expedition, and they are out in the wild, and they are hungry, and they decide right there in the wild to make an oven so my 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 thing my thinking on this is that this probably was quite common because you it's hard to find archaeological leftovers of a pit you know <laughs> that's been dug but, but one more way we can analyze this is that we look at the indo-european route because we share uh, indo-european heritage um and you look at cultures that are more sort of pre-Christian, before the introduction of modernity, and you look at these tribal cultures, for example, in the Himalayas, they're very similar um, mythologies, 
um, as the Nordic mythologies. They have very similar carvings, for example, sim similar symbols. There's a lot of similarities, there's a lot, lot of matching there. And there also you have these cooking pits, um, mm. kind of like tandoors, what they call them. So they're the clay, clay ovens that they would just make when they're going on expeditions and things like that. So you can actually draw out, okay, so this is what these people did. Many of these villages that I'm talking about uh, haven't even had electricity um, until 20 years ago. I haven't had any, um, haven't been in touch with society, modern society ever <laughs> before that. I mean, there's still uh, tribes that live like that who I've lived with for many, many years. And that's sort of also my attraction to the Viking Age because it's like going home to me. So... And that's it, that's my Himalayan uh, Nordic connection. Hmm. So it's it it is home for me. That's why Norway is home for me as well. But this is where we can figure out. I mean, I think there's a lot because you can see uh, archaeologically that we have the same kind of clothing. We have the same kind of materials. We have the same kind of um, so much similarity in the cultures. You can see from there where it is. We even have Viking flatbreads. You know, very similar to the Viking flatbreads in India. We make them. We, we, uh, the, the modern version of that is just the roti. But um, you're talking about the one we had in Dhar, for instance. Dhar, for yeah, instance. Yeah. So in the Himalayas, you would have these really thick flatbreads. So there is kind of this. Um, yeah, you you can go and refer to what they eat there and kind of contextualize it into what they would do, what they what what they would do in the Viking ages. So there's there's many ways you can you can figure out what what is our cultural history. Definitely, looking at looking at places where where these traditions are still alive, yeah, is is uh, is definitely a good a good indicator of of how it would have been back then as well. Yeah, that's that's how we as scholars also work, right? You know, as if you're a scholar trying to figure out uh, pre-Christian religion of Scandinavia, you you you. Use comparative methods in different ways. You you look at well, you know, associated cultures of different kinds. Of course, the Indo-European cultures, um, but even you can go beyond that and also look at other other types of cultures that might still, in different ways, of be living close to the way that uh, people might have lived in ancient Scandinavia and so on. So yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And of course, you yeah, doing that with food as well. The, it's just, it's awesome. I am really hungry now, actually. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay, actually just wanted to pull back to what you were saying before, um, Jonas, about how how food almost, it's more than just, just taste and, and what you eat. And when you go and do the work yourself, when you, you know, whether, whether it's you go stalking for a deer for five days or you go and pick the, you know, forage the, the plants and then the vegetables yourself that tastes better to you than just there's something about it on a, on a, on a whole other level when you've had to work for it and earn it rather than kind of just going and buying it from a shop and getting these ingredients and putting them together. And I guess that's something that you guys try and sort of, and sort of take advantage of when you take people out foraging and take people on these adventures. Is that, you know, is that something that you try and really aim towards? That is sort of the goal. Um, we're going towards more and more so. But we live in, obviously, a, a capitalist economy. 
um, in a globalist capitalist economy. But so we, it's slowly, slowly we're moving towards um, having our own space in Norway. And we want to focus um, on developing cuisines for the different areas in Norway. And, but yet also like uh, within our own space, we want to be able to create these experiences for people to help the go, them go out in nature and connect with, with nature through this food experiences and how to collect food. So that, that combination is what is actually food. You know, and this is where also the name of matter comes in. It's, it's matra, it's Mother Earth, and you're connecting to it. So I don't think the experience of eating uh, can be separated from who we are. And the, the whole experience of making food. So it is very much getting back into a different way of thinking than the kind of market that we live in. Um, this is also what I started off with saying with the with the with the restaurant. Uh, we have to go back into eating with communities. We have to go back into um, going into the ground. This is what we're looking for. That's why we have to do it, because we are looking for that identity to our land, to that connection to each other, where we are locally. I mean, for, for me, it reminds me very much of what like Heston Blumenthal being kind of the big sort of famous chef, but what he tends to do with, I guess, trying to bring in those other senses and add in these other kind of just make a whole environment around food and make it more than just the eating you know play with the other senses and i guess make it a, a whole you know a whole spectacle and it's you know it's not just a case of just putting food in your mouth it's an experience right yeah it puts it puts my whole uh going to through the drive-through at a burger joint yesterday, it's a shame, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with a great burger, man. Uh, that's yeah. uh, that, that. That we should we shouldn't shame that just because Heston Blumenthal is making food out of duck farts or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just uh, you know, but uh, but <laughs> no, but but to be honest. Uh, uh, you you bring up something which which uh, which is something that I'm I'm and we are as a company very interested in because the development with food since the onset of the of the idea of a restaurant was that it's become more and more complicated more and more spectacular you know mm-hmm. and and the molecular gastronomic uh, uh, revolution definitely sort of exacerbated that you know to a point where you could sort of get sort of a, served a bubble. And and then someone's going to come and prick it, and then steam is going to come out, and then you're left with a little duck vagina, you know, or something <laughs> like that. You know, that's just that's just you know, I, I don't know why I have this sort of duck mm. fart, duck vagina thing going on right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> we spent I, I all our money on eating out in the I, Michelin star yeah, restaurant. I, but I, I, blame, I blame Corona. I'm going cuckoo, just being cooped up. Oh in yeah, here, we're so all we're so, all yeah. going along. <laughs> blame Corona. You know, <laughs> that's my theme song. No, but no, but the whole point is that you know that, that it's, it's almost like magic. You know, it's almost like you know the kind of stuff that happens in Harry Potter or something like that. You know, like this kind of thing is it is like magic. And 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 a restaurant, sort of what it is today, is like a space that you go into f- to experience something magical with food, right? To get wooed. It's 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 almost like a, a, an art exhibition somehow. So so a restaurant has become this this curated space for a particular experience. And that is all great, and that is something that I highly appreciate. That's and, and novelty. Find, yeah, that's mm-hmm. novelty, and I find that 
incredibly uh, inspiring and and I have modernist cuisine, one of the sort of bibles of um, of molecular uh, gastronomy here, right here behind me. Yeah. So I find a lot of inspiration in that. But what it's missing is that you're you are going to this restaurant. Maybe you're a couple, maybe you're four people, something like that, and then you're sitting down, but you're completely isolated from the other diners. The only thing that connects you is that you're eating the same food somehow, but you don't really speak to them. You don't interact with them. You're just there in your own little bubble going to eat a bubble that has the blue top made <laughs> for you. <laughs> How awesome that that kind of came together there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's absolutely, totally unintended. But... Um, but so so what we're working at is to how do we combine that experience of having a, a you know a, you know a plate of food in front of you which which a lot of work had gone into and and it is a kind of creation of art or something like that but then combining that with that social experience and that experience also of connecting people to to nature through food connecting them to some deep rooted history culture uh and so on, and and Nena brings up the the Indo-European um, uh, route there, and that the Indo-European connection is something that we also really like to 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 look at. We've started creating a kind of an Indo-Nordic cuisine as well, where we where we mix these uh, things that we have learned from uh, from exploring Nordic food and and archaeology and so on, with techniques and ideas and spices from. Um, from India, only spices, not not vegetables and so on that have to be air freighted and all this kind of stuff. But but spices, which could have come on a camel's back, you know, but because they're dry, so they they last a long time and so on. So there's a sustainability aspect to that as well. But um, you know, so so creating all these deep deep narratives with food and then having that social aspect to bring people together to share that experience is incredibly important to us. I think that's that's absolutely beautiful because, like you say, it's almost as if we've gone in this direction where the the food is the the sole reason and the sole. I guess it is the sole reason for going to a restaurant, but it's it, in some cases it's almost it's just like a cycle of in you go you in you in you sit down you eat your food you pay your bill you leave, and it's just a never ending cycle. Whereas it seems like you're wanting, you know, you wanting to create a much more social environment where everybody can come and and get on and get together, and and it's not all just about the food. Yes, you're going to have this amazing food, but you're also around people that you're going to speak to, and it's going to be an in, an entertainment in itself rather than just here's some really fancy food. Aren't we amazing because we made a bubble in a bubble in a bubble? It's really interesting that you guys are pointing out this uh, this subject of the the space itself and like what what is happening around you as you're eating. Um, as a Scandinavian in America, um, I have always been very baffled about restaurant experiences here, because like you know a, a restaurant in in the U.S. a typical place where you go and eat um, usually has a huge flat screen somewhere that's that's playing sports right and uh, like i don't know how this is in the uk i've never actually been to the uk so, so i'm not uh, not familiar with how it works over there but <laughs> but like that's that's not the common experience that you get like eating experience in 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 places in scandinavia for instance or in germany and so on um 
and that's like that's a whole new level of of completely ignoring your surroundings in a sense uh when you're eating right because you're you're not even you're not even really paying attention to the person you're with you're both paying attention to all the screens that are like around you like as you're watching you're watching sports while you're eating food and the screens in your hand you see it's so common when you go out and there you see a whole family of five and they're all sat there looking at an ipad or an iphone and you know they don't look up they just eat their food and they don't speak to each other and he, and this is kind of going back to what i said earlier about we become a global society but it all kind of exists in this little handheld device and we become detached from the people who are immediately around us yeah yeah exactly and and aside from that you know it's another really important uh, uh weird part for me at least of of uh of the eating experience at such like gastro pubs and stuff uh, here in the u.s is the server who's constantly looking to boost their you know the amount of tips that they'll get right so like they come and they even interrupt you as you're having a conversation with the other people at the table and you're just like, I mean, in America, it's like normal. People don't seem to really, you know, think about it anymore. But but me as a foreigner, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Why are you interrupting me as I'm having a conversation with the people I'm supposed to be, you know, interacting with? Here? <laughs> yeah, I was going to give you a tip. But now <laughs> that you've interrupted my whole experience with your sort of incessive need for more money you're certainly not getting <laughs> i mean what what you just said about um ignoring the other people Mateus, uh, it's not I, I don't think it's even that we ignore the other people i think we almost find it offensive if those people even dare to encroach on our meal you know if, if somebody makes too loud of a noise or someone even if somebody says something to you it's almost like you know you're offended by like how dare you interrupt my little yeah absolutely my little for the phrase you know for the the word of the episode my little bubble how dare you come into that exactly oh, i think though that's a very european way of perceiving that because you know american ways of interacting is you know you kind of expect everybody to interrupt you all the time here actually <laughs> it's only because i'm european that i have an opinion about it i think <laughs> i think most americans experience this as just normal right um but but yeah no you're totally right um it's a and i I'd, I'd have to say you know the ways that americans tend to interact in like the public space like you know you can get people talking to you in all kinds of situations. I actually very much enjoy this, even though culturally that's so very different from me, um, from my general experience uh, growing up and so on in Scandinavia, because in Scandinavia, you don't necessarily interact with people in, in public space. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that uh, about American culture. Um, but that's, of course, you know, different from the whole eating experience where you're like, you know... <laughs> in this weird weird design space in in this country but it's it's very it's it's very interesting because i'm also a, a philosopher and i'm doing my research in philosophy and for me uh, uh, in my center as i i research in the the center for uh, research in modern european philosophy uh, which was michel foucault's uh, center in france and then it was thrown out of france and 
the only place that would take it up was U the UK because it's quite radical. <laughs> but uh, in my center, like what I've noticed um, is that most of the people in my generation are basically researching on alienation. And alienation is seems to be the biggest philosophical problem, at least in continental European philosophy at the moment. And I mean, in my, again, it's very much my own opinion. Um, and I think it's very much to do with the disconnection from nature, apart from, you know, talking about the capital and the neoliberal economy and all of that. I think it is, if we start culturally changing ourselves and going back to uh, living in tune with nature, we will be able to divert from uh, the climate crisis. And this is very much what I've always tried to do and we are trying to do as a company. Um, and we can use that platform of the capital economy to be able to, um, you know, take this out there, these kind of cultural changes. And we can do this with music. We can do this with food, with with art, um, this is what this is the power that we have, and of course we have to live within the world. We can't be disconnected from it. We have to be grounded within it. So we can't rebel against it. We can't just be like, oh yeah, we, we're just going to like sit around in a drum circle and and <laughs> bang about and be Vikings. You know <laughs> that doesn't work. We have to partake in the world. That's the only way we can effectuate proper cultural change, and um, through that. I think the politics will definitely uh, be influenced, and uh, we we are really trying to do that because we we are we are killing ourselves, no matter what. I mean, socially, um, obviously, environmentally. So these are the challenges we have. Yeah, no, I, I I think you're very right about these things. And actually, as a philosopher, I would like to ask you a question, because um, you know I'm always looking for a silver lining in the whole coronavirus. Uh, pandemic scenario so so do you as a philosopher do you think that we're you know, perhaps getting to re, uh, to sort of like uh, relive a little more of like the localized life as we're all cooped up in in these uh, our, our small little societies around the world and, and can't go out and can't go to uh, all the normal things and all that stuff I think we're suffering from uh, cabin fever. I think we're like fish in a fishbowl, fishbowl syndrome. We, we can find ourselves in these kind of architectural surroundings. Uh, we need to be, uh, I think naturally human beings need to be outside and together. Um, but what's happening is that we slowed down the pace and what's happening is that the, bo the birds are getting bolder <laughs> and we're starting to see how the natural world lives without us and it, it can live without us, you know, we are, we are expendable. Yeah. <laughs> and as a human race, we need to think about that. But it's also beautiful to see everybody coming together in solidarity for the first time in history and staying at home, listening to each other. That's never happened on a global scale before. And that for me is like, whoa, okay, that's happening. I was expecting riots. I was expecting like a lot, I expected it to be a lot, lot worse. But what's stopping is our consumer society, which is something, it's almost like a blessing. You know, we are out of money, we have no income now. But now I'm thinking, huh, maybe we have to think about this differently. It's, it might be the best opportunity for all of, all of us to shut this system down and, and think about a new way to live. It's this reflective space that we have. 
And yes, we have to do it in our fish bowls. And yes, we have to go through this because it's completely insane. But at the same time, there's something I really hope, I really, really hope that there is something in us that tells us that, oh, we need to perhaps relook at everything that we're doing. Because this is ridiculous. I mean, the kind of uncertainty, the kind of craziness there is in it. It's we shouldn't be in this state. You know, I have friends of mine who are living in Norway who are, who have boats and they are fishing and they're living a perfectly normal life. And then I'm here in London. I mean, I'm lucky I have the heat, but there are people in like high rise buildings. That's not how we should be living. That's completely crazy. It's insane. If you think about it for just two minutes, we are, we're there. All of it is completely insane. Our architecture is insane. So we need to we need to somehow think about how do we break this? And this is the opportunity that we have. And I don't know where we're going to go from it. I'm not... Uh, what I was mean, it Alana said predict. the other day when we were in the heat? She said, homes, homes are not boxes. Homes are living spaces. Yes. Nice. Our, Whoa. our eight-year-old. <laughs> that's an eight-year-old. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's a good place for us to, to wrap this one up. Um, I think we again we will we will have you two on again when you know especially when you're getting ready to do an event. I think that will be interesting to really go into what you what you're doing. Um, Jonas, obviously we're going to have you on for your music side of things as well. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that for sure. Certainly. Yeah, I mean it's it's been a pleasure. I mean I've certainly learned a lot, and I think there's there's definitely a lot we can we can speak about in future as well when we get you guys back on. That would be a, an, an honor. Person. An honor, absolutely. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm really glad. I'm really glad yeah. that uh, uh, just before you wrap it up, I'm really glad that Nena uh, got to sort of mention a bit about this here at the at the end of it because that's, you know, <laughs> a really really big part of it. Um, the 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 connection to nature, really. And maybe next time we can we can get get more into that. That would be uh, that'd be excellent. Absolutely. And Matthias, have you got anything? Yeah, I just I just want to thank you guys for uh coming on here and uh, enlightening us on the uh, on this subject of uh, food and connecting to nature. Uh the wolves of modernity as well. Um so thank you so much for that. And I'm so much looking forward to when we're going to be talking about uh, your music as well because that's going to be big. I I I see great things with that in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, you. But, well, this is an actual, actually, funny thing because of the, about the whole uh, about the whole music thing. Uh, that's something that both you, Matthias, and Nena are involved with as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah. it's all in the family. Um, Matthias and I are writing a book together as well. We are, yes. <laughs> so this yeah. is more or less a... how, how will we cover all these things <laughs> we don't have enough time in the day uh no but uh, but but certainly yeah uh that that is that is going to be uh to, to be really great yeah awesome and well, thank you very much i think it's a, a beautiful thing that you're both doing i think it's it's something that more people should be doing trying to get back to that nature and 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 enjoying food and other people's company a lot more. So thank you both very much for, for coming on. And I'm sure we, like I said, we will have you on again anytime. Thank you for calling thank us. You, Dale. It was such an honor. Thank you, Daniel. So thank fun. you, Matthias. Thank, thank you, guys. You. No problem. Thank you.